0: You're listening to to New Books Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Ronald L. Trosper, author of Indigenous Economics, Sustaining Peoples and Their Lands, published last year by University of Arizona Press. Dr. Trosper, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
2: Okay. My background is that I'm from the Salish and Kootenai Tribes in western Montana, and I grew up in western Montana. My father was a member of the tribe and also worked for the Forest Service. And uh, when I went to college, I went to Harvard University, and then I went on to PhD, get a PhD at Harvard in economics. But when I got to writing my dissertation, I came back home and wrote about the effect of the allotment policy, which was a historical policy that took a lot of land and broke up the Flathead Indian Reservation, which is where the Saint Shikuteni tribes are and allowed white settlers to come in and homestead. So after I wrote my dissertation on that topic, I've worked uh, teaching indig- uh, indigenous economics or American Indian economic development at a number of universities. I took a break to work for the council of energy resource tribes and to work for my tribe for six years. Before I returned to uh, academics, which I did by going to the School of Forestry at Northern Arizona University in 1990, and I've worked in forestry until I started working in American Indian studies in 2011 here at the University of Arizona. So I my my this book is a summary or a of uh, my view of indigenous economics after having taught it. And worked at it uh, for those many years. I got my degree in 74 and I worked for my tribe from uh, 1985 to 1989 and then I've been an academic since then.
0: Yeah, the book definitely does give that sense of putting together this long career of doing a lot of different interesting things and kind of bringing it all together. um,
2: That's right. So one of the
0: core concepts in the book is the idea of a relational subject. So can you talk about what is a relational subject and how does that conception differ from the way that mainstream Western economics usually conceptualizes people?
2: So relational subjects come in two types a personal relational subject, which would be a correspond to what in standard economics is an individual. And then a group of people who get together and share uh, goals and, and activities and form themselves into a relational group. The word subject is used, uh, I take it from a sociologist, Margaret Archer, and her co-author, Poli Donati. They, they like to say subject to emphasize that the entity is in charge. She's is somebody who's, uh, or a group of people who are doing things and acting so a personal relational subject is a person who's been formed by their relations uh, as they grew up and as they proceeded through life, and those relations are relationships with the natural world uh, and relationships with other people. So in the process of uh, deciding or thinking about, uh, in the process of growing up, a person does it discusses with oneself what uh, to do, what to think about, what to, how to adjust to the world. And so the, the idea that people have an internal conversation, which they then extend to conversation with other people in order to make a group. So the word relational subject refers to the person a, a group of persons who have got together to work on this or that joint goal. They they didn't necessarily get together in the case of a family because the children were born into the family and the parents proceeded to raise them. So one of the first relational subjects is a family with the children. and Well, its first relational subject is the couple who got together. Then they have children, they have a family, and that family then forms the children. So the difference between that and the concept of uh, an individual in economics is the, the economics is very vague about where an individual comes from, or how this individual gets formed. It sort of the 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 idea is, of course, that there people are raised in families, but once they uh, become an adult, they're an independent individual with preferences those preferences also where those preferences come from in economics is not very well explained but the the concept of a relational person says that the person forms their own preferences by considering what condition what they are who they are in the world and where they want to go so i i'll elaborate a little more on this as we get into some of the other questions but the basic idea is that people respond to the matters before them by reflection and thinking about what they want to do. They discuss what they want to do with other people. And uh, this is different from the economics model, which is kind of robotic. It is a people, a person or an individual has preferences and they consent, they have choices and they can uh, look at their list of preferences and decide what to do. And this notion that they think hard about it isn't really stressed. So Stenter goes, "Let's go ahead and have, ask yeah. me more."
0: <laughs> sure, yeah. And your your discussion there and in the book was giving me flashbacks to when I took an econ one-oh-one class, and they were like, "Yeah, so people have all these preferences, and we don't care where they come from. We just put them in this black box over here and not worry about it." And I was like, "But that's that's important, isn't it?" Um,
2: it's very important but it doesn't uh, they economists seem to be very insistent until recently and i can talk about the fact that uh, the other key part of an individual is that he or she is assumed to be selfish interested only in maximizing their own utility based on those preferences and the notion that people are generous or consider other people or are able to form relationships is not emphasized in economics, but some economists lately have tested that idea of pure selfishness and found it to be false. They put uh, undergraduate students or students into a laboratory with computer connection and they have them play complicated uh, economic games. And they discover that the selfish answer is not the usual answer in most of those uh, situations. So they now say that people have a preference to be social or a preference for altruism. But the idea that these ideas and preferences are changed and generated by discussing with other people is left out of the uh, experiments that dis- in the first place.
0: Yeah. And so then kind of jumping off uh, from that, you're talking about discussing with other people. People, but another important point I think that you make in the book is that you know these other people. It's not just other human people that relational subjects involve a whole lot of different non-human entities as well. So, can you talk a bit about the the role that the non-human world plays in forming relational subjects?
2: Very good. Thank you for bringing that point up. I know you've read the book, Uh, so the big the difference, well, the difference I take from the personal relational subject as told by Archer and Donati, they focus on people talking to people. But a very strong view of most, among most indigenous pers- people is that the entities in the natural world are also conscious and capable of interacting with people. Uh, it, this is something that folks can Come, come to a belief with if they have a pet dog or if they have a horse because they have typically begun to interact with uh, those beings. And they discover that say a pet dog thinks a certain way, looks a certain way and if you get good training and you learn how a dog thinks then you can communicate with the dog and have a good time with the dog and the dog will learn to take, less, take, take instruction. So it's And this idea that we commonly, in the Western world, except with pets, in the indigenous world, extends to all of the countryside. So the moose and the sheep and the deer and the plants and even the mountains and the rivers are assumed to have consciousness of their own type and be able to react to what humans do. And humans are, should be able to figure out what these other beings are thinking and doing. We don't necessarily talk with the other beings, but we do interact with them and understand what they want. And then in forming a relationship with them, uh, satisfy their desires as well as our own.
0: Yeah, and I like the way you put it out. One point you bring up, uh... Bruno Latour and his idea of the parliament of things. And you kind of say, yeah, he was on the right track, but he you know, still thought that all those things needed human spokespeople. Uh, right, and right. then from an indigenous point of view, no, they don't. If we, if we listen to them in the right way.
2: That's very, that's, that's right. That's the way it looks. Yep.
0: Yeah, and I think that sort of goes to a larger point that I think you make uh, a lot of interesting connections between um, the indigenous ideas that you're talking about and the way that non-indigenous scholars have kind of groped towards those same ideas, but maybe not quite gotten there uh, in the same way, Um, which I think is a a nice thing that happens uh, in the the book.
2: Yes, And, and as I was working on the book, one of the puzzles that I had, I had in a previous book, I had made the proposition that sharing, sharing the catch of fish, or sharing the product of the countryside, helped give the right incentives to people or to persons. And so I was still in the pretty much still in the uh, economists' mode of talking about incentives and so on. But then the being in American Indian studies and being surrounded by other scholars and other indigenous peoples, the, the point about relationships is always made. Every, the elders have made it, and now the professors are making it. And so uh, it was natural for me to say, well, I need to shed what I can of the, of the assumptions I learned about economics and jump into the relational way of looking at the world. And that really turned out to be a productive thing to do.
0: Yeah, and that actually kind of points towards the next question that I had, which was you have a a discussion of the prisoner's dilemma, which is kind of a classic uh, model in economics, and you argue that the potlatch system can essentially solve the prisoner's dilemma. So can you talk a bit about how the potlatch works and and how that presents a solution to the prisoner's dilemma?
2: Okay, well, the prisoner's dilemma, it's named after a story that the game theorists, um, early game theorists, made the idea being that if, if a couple people are arrested and they're supposed, they're charged with a crime, the police isolate them, make them unable to talk to each other and offer them choices which persuade them to confess even if they're not guilty. Uh, and so they, they, with those choices that the police have offered, people confess, and this is a true thing. We know that lots of confessions are coerced by the police. When that idea is turned into an economics issue, the standard example, one of the standard examples is a fishery where individuals isolated from each other go fishing, or they take a fishing boat out on the, fisher- on the, on the lake, and they catch as many fish as they can for themselves. No, the nature of a fishery is that if you catch too many fish, the fish won't be able to have uh, to spawn and have a next generation of fish. So the fishery won't replenish itself if you catch too many or the wrong kind of fish. So the prisoner's dilemma is that individuals isolated with each other have an incentive to buy the biggest boat they can and catch the most fish that they can if others in facing that same dilemma also by a big boat they all have big boats but they still catch the same number of fish because they can only catch the fish that are in the lake so a way to solve that problem and to change the incentives is to have the fishermen share their catch at the end of the day when they return to the dock and if think about it if you're a fisherman and you're out there or you're thinking about buying a boat you think well when we all get back to the dock, we're going to split up what we catch evenly among ourselves. So if I fish real hard, I'll have to give away some of my fish to those other people. Similarly, if they fish very hard, they'll have to give it back to me. So what I have, I have an incentive then to not overspend on that boat and to form a relationship with those other fishermen so we can share the fish. This concept of sharing the fish, uh, there's a mathematical form that I put in the book of The Prisoner's Dilemma in which if you cooperate, you end up with a bigger return than if you don't cooperate, but you have to cooperate in order for everybody to get that big return. The idea being that if everyone buys a big boat, you catch the fish, but you still have to pay the cost of the boat. But if everyone buys a small boat and shares the catch, there's more net return to the fishery after the cost of fishing, so the idea of sharing the catch is what I claim the potlatch is all about. And in the Pacific Northwest, we had, uh, we have many tribes who whose prime source of food is salmon, and they fish for salmon. They they divide up fishing places. And uh, on a river, there'll be several places where people catch fish, but they have it. And each house or each group of people spends the summer catching fish. But in the winter, they share their wealth with each other. And they have potlatch feasts in which one chief gives a lot of uh, his wealth to another chief, and then the chief gives the wealth to their followers. And similarly, so you have a series of feasts in which the fishermen are actually sharing the product of the fishery. And I'd argue that, well, with that system, you're able to restrain your harvest of the fish. When I started, when I went up to the Northwest Coast to study it, turns out they felt that the fish are very generous. The fish give their lives to us. And we as people should be very generous with each other. And if we're generous with each other, we'll have a lot of fish. And so the archeologists discovered that as uh, this system developed on the Northwest coast, population of people and population of fish increased. And if you talk to the people on the Northwest coast, they say the fish live in houses just like we do with title holders. And if we treat them right, we treat the fish right, the fish will respond and treat us right. So the whole idea of sharing is just works through the entire world view of the folks on the northwest coast. And they feel if you share, the share, the, the return will come back to you. And what's amazing is many people in the world, when they face a fishery, they overfish and they destroy the fishery. Under the potlatch system, the fishery uh, expanded and prospered. And uh, some folks have questioned whether that's true. One of the things that the uh, title holders would do is when the salmon returned from the ocean, they would not catch the first returners purposely because they knew that the salmon uh, evolve according to the what they're given. And so if you don't catch the first salmon, then every time... The salmon returns, they'll always return. You're encouraging the genes of those very first returners. So uh, they made an effort to increase the size of the fish and increase their returning back. They harvested the smaller fish and let the bigger fish reproduce, increasing the size of the fish, which shows conscious manipulation of the fish for a conscious goal. And that system survived for million, thousands of years, three or four or 5,000 years, depending upon who you talk to. The system is the same in the archaeological record, the houses and everything, the way the people lived, it, it's persisted. And so this is the evidence, I claim, that uh, a relational system based upon con, uh, respecting the animals that you live on and treating them the way they need to be treated really works.
0: Yeah, this is another point where, you know, I'm in environmental studies and I have read about the prisoner's dilemmas, tragedy, of the commons, those kind of ideas, you know, more times than I can count. And you just really unpacked some of the the assumptions that go into a lot of those discussions and that lead them down kind of the typical ways that people talk about those problems and how it it doesn't have to be that way. There are other, other approaches.
2: Yes. And it's important to emphasize that the, the the dilemma occurs when the prisoners are forced not to communicate when you're forced to be an individualist uh, responsible for yourself and communication with others is discouraged. And that's the model of that's in our introductory economics courses. But it's it's a creation of a society. It doesn't have to be that way.
0: Yeah. So now circling back to the idea of relational subjects that we talked about uh, earlier, connected to that, you have the idea of relational goods that these relational subjects are able to pursue. So can you talk a bit about what our relational good is, and you know maybe give us some examples of that?
2: So when uh, persons get together or persons, both human and non-human persons, get together, they uh, listen to each other and reflect on what each other needs. And then they take action to support mutual interests. And a relational good is a, a real thing that has a subjective component. It's how people it's a a sense of uh, togetherness or a sense of love or a sense of solidarity that our people in the group share among themselves. And as a result of sharing that, they can act together in concert and come to agreements. Uh, But if somebody is, is it leaves the group or is not in the group, they, they lose access to that relational good. And so they, uh, it, so it's not a, public good in the sense of economists as something that everyone uses in a physical sense. It's got this subjective element that depends upon being in the group and the kinds of words that we use to describe these relational goods. For instance, a couple, we talk about the love that the couple feels for each other and the loving relationship that they have. Uh, if it's a uh village or a a group of families, it's the solidarity that they have or the sense of trust that they have in each other. Uh, It's the uh, sense that they have somebody that will back them up if they need help. And so they have support, they have solidarity from other folks. And in in indigenous thought, uh, some of the things that people who developed these relationships focused on. I like to use the example of the uh, Haudenosaunee people, but also known as the Iroquois people who had a League of the Iroquois. And they, the story that they tell about how they created their league was that they were a bunch of warring villages who were uh, engaged in war with each other. There was a lot of fighting going on. They had a prophet who said, there's a better way to do things. And he went around convincing people to build relationships with each other. And he identified three things, goods, that would happen for the people if they managed to stop fighting and form relationships. And they're called peace, power, and equity. Uh, peace was the big one. We had They were at war, so they needed to have peace. Power was the sense of acting together, they could get things done. And equity was the sense that they shared equally and fairly what they produced. And so the peace, power and equity is sometimes sometimes called righteousness. Uh, But the, uh, the, the notion that a large group, in this case is a federation of tribes, five tribes got together. They made peace among themselves and set up a set of rules that allowed them to maintain this peace, which they shared among themselves, but they did not share with their neighbors. They went to war with their neighbors. So uh, it's an, a, a relational good is something that's shared within a relational subject of any size, from a family to a village to a tribe to a confederacy. Uh, we, the Iroquois, within a village, they would divide themselves into two halves, and each half of the village would support the other half if it needed help or if it ha- there was a death or anything like that. So the village, it was a mutual support system in the village, and that gave the village peace, power, and equity at their level. So that's okay. something about what a what a relational good is. It's a concept that's very difficult for an economist to grasp. And I want to be very clear that there's a subjective element to it. It's a sense of feeling among the people, a sense of love and a sense of solidarity. And so if, if an indigenous person is uh, someone who lives off harvesting deer or elk, they come to have a love and a sense of camaraderie with the elk. And they say, well, I only will shoot those those elk, or I only kill those elk that." Present themselves to me, and so we'll have a whole uh, thinking about the having a good solid relationship with the beings on the on the land, and a sense of uh, feeling. And the idea is that the uh, elk is reciprocating and feeling that as well.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: Yeah. So then another one of the non-indigenous scholars that you talk about in the book is Eleanor Ostrom. And she's she's got her famous list of design principles for uh the commons and you argue that these ideas about relational subjects and relational goods can basically explain why those design principles kind of are what they are and why they work so can you talk us through that about how your framework helps us to understand what's going on with the kind of systems that ostrom uh, about. talks about
2: okay, so Ostrom had a list of principles, originally eight, that grew longer as other people explored her thinking, uh, and I say that these principles can be divided into three groups. One group is a set of principles that describe how you build good relationships, and so in the book I have I list ways to build good relationships. And I say that some of her principles are that. One of them is uh, make decisions by consensus. Another one is uh, persuade your your other members of the group. Uh, don't coerce them. Uh, another that she has is have low-cost, uh, easy ways to solve conflicts. And obviously, if you're able to solve conflicts among the group, you're able to build strong relationships among the group, so so there's uh, we can make a list of things way to treat ways to treat other people that build strong relationships. A person should act in a trustworthy manner, but not necessarily trust everyone. And so, uh, Ostrom points out that in a well-run commons, uh, they monitor each other. And, and they monitor the condition of the resource, and they monitor each other. And this is a case of being trusty on an individual basis, but not fully trusting within the group. So uh, I could go further into this, but uh, I, a set of her rules essentially can be understood as building relationships. Now, if you build a relationship or, among people who are sharing a fishery or sharing an irrigation project, then it's possible to start to trust each other. It's also possible to create an identity among the people—a sense that they are one group, and they they share this this uh, resource. And uh, the resource uh, being in the relationship is part of the group. So there's a boundary, an identity to the group. And furthermore, they—if the group is going to survive—they have to have a sense of equity that people get some get. Individuals or persons get from the operation of the group something that's fair compared to what they give to it. So people who work hard may get a little more than someone who doesn't, but everyone will get something and there'll be a sense of fairness among the people. So this sense of fairness or the ability to trust each other or the ability to have an identity and say we are a member of the group, these are all relational goods. And so some of her principles address those. Then she also places some ex, something that looks like external principles, but I think are partly internal. One is a, a group of people living off of a resource like a fishery or an uh, irrigation system needs to be able to make their own decisions. They need to run their affairs themselves. In other words, they need to have autonomy. And actually, and we think about a good relationship, people in a good relationship are also given respect and allowed to have autonomy and to be what they want to be as long as they participate in the group. So the idea of autonomy says that any one group will be able to run its own affairs. And then the next level of recognition that she has is that a group, a fishery or a, a a group of people in a, at a local scale has relationships with a larger scale. So there needs to be a multiplicity of groups, a sort of a layers of groups. Polycentral centric governance is what she says. Many centers of governance. So groups of people get together and operate uh, together as a group and govern the larger issues. So that, for instance, uh, on a, in the northwest coast on a river... There would be uh, various houses on the river, but they would get together as a river-wide matter to, co- to consider issues that the whole river dealt with. So that, that there's a, a lower-level relational groups, and then there's higher-level relationships, which is relationships among the groups, which she called polycentric governance. So the, the key principles focus on the local group but then two of them focus on the relationships among groups, which I think is, is really important.
0: Okay, so then that's the- how I
2: restructure <laughs> her, her, uh, her uh, principles. I say, well, she showed, she found these principles by examining uh, folks that successfully managed a, common, a commons for a very long time, and I think what she found was that relationships are the basis of those uh, those groups.
0: Okay. Then the final chapter of the book is about entrepreneurship, which I'll admit kind of surprised me when I saw that in the table of contents, because when I hear you know the word entrepreneur, that makes me think of this kind of ruthless individualist uh, kind of approach to economics, that's exactly what you're arguing against in the book. So what does entrepreneurship mean in the context of indigenous economics?
2: So uh, you jump to the last chapter of the book. The next to last chapter of the main part of the book talks about relational leadership. And I argue that in a relational society, there have to be leaders who help the relationships survive and prosper, and so uh, leaders in a relational system uh, support the relationships of the people in the system. And among those leaders will be entrepreneurs. They will be leaders who help the people in the society to live, discover new things to do, new ways to make a living, and uh, so they they lead. The the uh, community, in new directions, but they don't necessarily But they maintain the fact that they are uh, build relationships with the people, and they maintain the relationships. And one of the things I do in that chapter is I reinterpret a book by Clifford Geertz called "Peddlers and Princes." And he went to the island of Bali, and he discovered that there were princes who had become entrepreneurs when the colonial Dutch had come in and taken away their governmental function. So the Dutch came in and started running the government. And the princes were left without a governmental function. They had been the leaders of the community. They, and, but since they were experienced as of uh, running relationships and being the people and the nobles in a relationship, they proceeded to create trucking companies and shipping companies and uh, new factories in which they use their bil- their relationship building skills to uh, get into new enterprises. And uh, this is something that, so my point would be that leaders can lead and create new enterprises in a relational way. They can respect each other and uh, do, and, create enterprises of that sort. Uh, uh, There's uh, some business school people in in New Zealand that have studied Maori tourist enterprises. And they argue that the entrepreneurs running these tourist enterprises actually build relationships and care about their workers, their customers, and they have a successful tourist business because they uh, have successful relationships that they support. And, and I, I go on to say that in, uh, in the contemporary economy, our legal systems allow the creation of cooperatives. And a cooperative form of an enterprise is a relational enterprise where the people in the cooperative share the profit. They work together, but they have, and they have shared decision-making. And the, the people that lead, the people that help those cooperatives come into existence and continue, are relational entrepreneurs. They're relational leaders, and uh, there's uh, that's the kind of person that that causes change and causes economic growth in a relational society. And that uh, notion that relational leadership is important uh, relates to to tribes. I it's it. I think it has. Uh, real importance. If, a, if an individual in a tribe is wants to establish a firm, they have to recognize that they're doing it within a society of people that, for instance, want to take care of the land. And so any enterprise that's based on the land has to uh, include and respect the entities on the land as well as the people. And it can't be a ruthless capitalist because ruthlessness uh, assumes that you transform the countryside and transforming the countryside is not maintaining relationships with the countryside. So that's what I argue that that entrepreneurs, which are very important in an economics book, uh, are they they are the people that cause change, but they operate within a relational framework and under the control of a the society. They have to operate within their society and respect other people and other beings
0: okay so your answer there actually actually made a a, oh yeah your answer made a good segue into the next thing that i wanted to ask about because you brought up examples from bali and the maori and you know earlier in our conversation you've given a lot of examples from the americas so you're you're drawing on things that have happened basically all over uh the world in the book so i wanted to ask about how you sort of found the balance between being able to show the commonalities between all of these different places and and cultures uh without kind of flattening or homogenizing uh them
2: ah so the The notion of relationality would be that a a relational subject or a a relationally organized group has a history that they've developed over time, and they had many different choices as they developed over time. And these choices, there there wasn't necessarily one best choice, but once they made that one, then the next one made sense based on that one. And so it would make sense that people would differ in how their history was carried out. They also make relationships with different non-human beings. So some folks uh, rely on a fishery. Some folks rely on uh, grazing animals. Others would be agriculturalists and would rely upon uh, plants that they tended. And so they would build relationships based upon the animals or the plants that they tend. And there's no reason that they would all come up with the same uh, way of doing things, although it, they are similar in that they all build relational goods. They all have relational leaders, but they do what they do differently. And, uh, and they need to be respected for that autonomy so it's, it's just fine that, uh, that uh, the relationships end up going in different places and having different types of communities. Uh, it's just that the ones that have relational goods and not relational bads are the ones that I would praise as, as uh, good ones. hmm <laughs>
0: Okay, so I think we've given our listeners a a good idea of what to expect if they pick up a copy of this book. Uh, So as we're sort of moving towards the end here, I first wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book.
2: Oh, I I have a long introduction, lots of people were very helpful, uh, and in particular, uh, the students I worked with that did uh, where we when we do research with indigenous communities, we have to build relationships with them. So I learned a lot from the projects with my students. And uh, I, I I, actually was very fortunate that my dissertation advisor was very open minded and he encouraged me to look at questions in a fundamental way. And and so I appreciate Kenneth Arrow, who's passed on, and Albert Hirschman, another one. They both helped me on my thesis. And that got me going in my, in my research. Uh, I learned a lot when I worked at home with the Salish and Kootenai tribes. I watched the operation of our tribal council, and I discovered that uh, watching them, I could I learned a lot about relationship building my father also was very good at relationship building, and so, in 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 the Salish and Kootenai tribes, we have a large number of relational leaders who have developed this or that part of the tribe's structure, and we've been able to uh, take over operation of uh, everything on planted everything that the, we own on on the uh, on the reservation. So, th- just the experience of working with. Uh, indigenous peoples here in the States uh, over time. And in Canada, I spent, when I was had the opportunity to work in British Columbia, I was able to talk with a lot of the elders there. And so I, I was a very much of a, acted like an anthropologist rather than an economist. I listened and saw how they were running things and tried to make, say to myself, and I kind of applied. Eleanor Ostrom, of course, was a great uh, uh, I met her before she died. She, she, I had a chance to uh, talk with her about things and go to the international conferences that she organized. And uh, she had a in her book on the commons. She said, "Well, if it works in the world, it's out there working. We should be able to find a theory that makes it, that explains why it works." And I thought that well, that that's good. Well, let's let's ask questions about why something is working. Rather than starting from some first principles and deducing something, it's better to be uh, an empirical uh, sociologist and and focus on on what works. And then try to understand why it works.
0: Yeah, definitely. so then that brings us to the traditional last question, which is what are you working on next? What kind of uh, projects do you have now that this book is out?
2: Well, I have a facetious answer. First, I'm okay. trying to publicize the book. Uh, but uh-huh. sec- second, uh, this we ended up talking here a lot about the connections between Eleanor Ostrom's work on the commons and the notion that uh, her principles... Are actually operational versions of relationality, and I want to write some articles going into that in somewhat greater depth. I don't think I've I've just scratched the surface of what could be the of the connections there, and I think that will interest the people that uh, study commons uh, and help answer and, and possibly help ask ask some new questions of the theory. So that's my main idea now. I'm kind of a theorist. I like I, I'm not I'm towards the end of my career so i don't want to start a big project with the community because i wouldn't necessarily be able to follow it through i'll help my students do that but some sort of work and how to how the the relationality approach intersects with the commons principles is something i'm really interested in and i'm glad you asked me lots of questions about it
0: <laughs> all right yeah i'll be i'll be looking forward to seeing those articles come out all right, well, Good. thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Well, you're very welcome, and thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it.
0: This has been a conversation with Ronald L. Trosper, author of Indigenous Economics, Sustaining Peoples in Their Lands, published last year by University of Arizona
2: Press.